Part 1, Sections 13 and 14 of The Song of the Lark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary. The Song of the Lark by Willa Seibert Cather. Part 1, 13 and 14. 13. At the beginning of June, when school closed, Thea had told Wunsch that she didn't know how much practicing she could get in this summer, because Thor had his worst teeth still to cut. My God, all last summer he was doing that, Wunsch exclaimed furiously. I know, but it takes them two years, and Thor is slow, Thea answered reprovingly. The summer went well beyond her hopes, however. She told herself that it was the best summer of her life so far. Nobody was sick at home, and her lessons were uninterrupted. Now that she had four pupils of her own and made a dollar a week, her practicing was regarded more seriously by the household. Her mother had always arranged things so that she could have the parlor four hours a day in summer. Thor proved a friendly ally. He behaved handsomely about his molars, and never objected to being pulled off into remote places in his cart. When Thea dragged him over the hill and made a camp under the shade of a bush or a bank, he would waddle about and play with his blocks or bury his monkey in the sand and dig him up again. Sometimes he got into the cactus and set up a howl, but usually he let his sister read peacefully while he coated his hands and face, first with an all-day sucker and then with gravel. Life was pleasant and uneventful until the 1st of September, when Wunsch began to drink so hard that he was unable to appear when Thea went to take her midweek lesson and Mrs. Kohler had to send her home after a tearful apology. On Saturday morning, she set out for the Kohlers again, but on her way, when she was crossing the ravine, she noticed a woman sitting at the bottom of the gulch, under the railroad trestle. She turned from her path and saw that it was Mrs. Talamantas, and she seemed to be doing drawn work. Then Thea noticed that there was something beside her, covered up with a purple and yellow Mexican blanket. She ran up the gulch and called to Mrs. Telemontes. The Mexican woman held up a warning finger. Thea glanced at the blanket and recognized a square red hand which protruded. The middle finger twitched slightly. Is he hurt? she gasped. Mrs. Telemontes shook her head. No, very sick. He knows nothing, she said quietly, folding her hands over her drawn work. Thea learned that Wunsch had been out all night, that this morning Mrs. Kohler had gone to look for him and found him under the trestle, covered with dirt and cinders. Probably he had been trying to get home and had lost his way. Mrs. Telemontes was watching beside the unconscious man while Mrs. Kohler and Johnny went to get help. 
You better go home now, I think, said Mrs. Telemontis, enclosing her narration. Thea hung her head and looked wistfully toward the blanket. Couldn't I just stay till they come, she asked. I'd like to know if he's very bad. Bad enough, sighed Mrs. Telemontis, taking up her work again. Thea sat down under the narrow shade of one of the trestle posts and listened to the locusts rasping in the hot sand while she watched Mrs. Telemontis evenly draw her threads. The blanket looked as if it were over a heap of bricks. I don't see him breathing any, she said anxiously. Yes, he breathes, said Mrs. Telemontis, not lifting her eyes. It seemed to Thea that they waited for hours. At last they heard voices, and a party of men came down the hill and up the gulch. Dr. Archie and Fritz Kohler came first. Behind were Johnny and Ray and several men from the roundhouse. Ray had the canvas litter that was kept at the depot for accidents on the road. Behind them trailed half a dozen boys who had been hanging round the depot. When Ray saw Thea, he dropped his canvas roll and hurried forward. Better run along home, Thea. This is ugly business. Ray was indignant that anybody who gave Thea music lessons should behave in such a manner. Thea resented both his proprietary tone and his superior virtue. I won't. I want to know how bad he is. I'm not a baby, she exclaimed indignantly, stamping her foot into the sand. Dr. Archie, who had been kneeling by the blanket, got up and came toward Thea, dusting his knees. He smiled and nodded confidentially. He'll be all right when we get him home. But he wouldn't want you to see him like this, poor old chap. Understand? Now, skip. Thea ran down the gulch and looked back only once, to see them lifting the canvas litter with winch upon it, still covered with the blanket. The men carried Winch up the hill and down the road to the Kohlers. Mrs. Kohler had gone home and made up a bed in the sitting room, as she knew the litter could not be got round the turn in the narrow stairway. Winch was like a dead man. He lay unconscious all day. Ray Kennedy stayed with him till two o'clock in the afternoon when he had to go out on his run. It was the first time he had ever been inside the Kohler's house, and he was so much impressed by Napoleon that the peace picture formed a new bond between him and Thea. Dr. Archie went back at six o'clock and found Mrs. Kohler and Spanish Johnny with Wunsch, who was in a high fever, muttering and groaning. There ought to be someone here to look after him tonight, Mrs. Kohler, he said. I'm on a confinement case, and I can't be here, but there ought to be somebody. He may get violent. Mrs. Kohler insisted that she could always do anything with Wunsch, but the doctor shook his head, and Spanish Johnny grinned. He said he would stay. The doctor laughed at him. Ten fellows like you couldn't hold him, Spanish, if he got obstreperous. An Irishman would have his hands full. Guess I'd better put the soft pedal on him. 
he pulled out his hypodermic. Spanish Johnny stayed, however, and the Kohlers went to bed. At about two o'clock in the morning, Wunsch rose from his ignominious cot. Johnny, who was dozing on the lounge, awoke to find the German standing in the middle of the room in his undershirt and drawers, his arms bare, his heavy body seeming twice its natural girth. His face was snarling and savage, and his eyes were crazy. He had risen to avenge himself, to wipe out his shame, to destroy his enemy. One look was enough for Johnny. Wunsch raised a chair threateningly, and Johnny, with the lightness of a picador, darted under the missile and out of the open window. He shot across the gully to get help, meanwhile leaving the Kohlers to their fate. Fritz, upstairs, heard the chair crash upon the stove. Then he heard doors opening and shutting, and someone stumbling about in the shrubbery of the garden. He and Paulina sat up in bed and held a consultation. Fritz slipped from under the covers, and going cautiously over to the window, poked out his head. Then he rushed to the door and bolted it. My God! Paulina, he gasped. He has the axe! He will kill us! The dresser, cried Mrs. Kohler. Push the dresser before the door. Ah, if you had your rabbit gun now. It is in the barn, said Fritz sadly. It would do no good. He would not be afraid of anything now. Stay you in the bed, Paulina. The dresser had lost its casters years ago, but he managed to drag it in front of the door. He is in the garden. He makes nothing. He will get sick again, maybe. Fritz went back to bed, and his wife pulled the quilt over him and made him lie down. They heard stumbling in the garden again, then a smash of glass. Ach, das Mitzbeet, gasped Paulina, hearing her hotbed shivered. The poor soul, Fritz, he will cut himself. Ach, what is that? They both sat up in bed. Vader, Ox, what is he doing? The noise came steadily, a sound of chopping. Paulina tore off her nightcap. De Bama, De Bama, he is cutting our trees, Fritz. Before her husband could prevent her, she had sprung from the bed and rushed to the window. Der Taubenschlag. Gerichter Himmel, he is chopping the dove-house down. Fritz reached her side before she had got her breath again and poked his head out beside her. There, in the faint starlight, they saw a bulky man, barefoot, half-dressed, chopping away at the white post that formed the pedestal of the dove-house. The startled pigeons were croaking and flying about his head, even beating their wings in his face, so that he struck at them furiously with the axe. In a few seconds there was a crash, and Wunsch had actually felled the dove-house. Oh, if only it is not the trees next, prayed Paulina. The dove-house you can make new again, but not to bomb. 
they watched breathlessly. In the garden below, Wunsch stood in the attitude of a woodman, contemplating the fallen coat. Suddenly he threw the axe over his shoulder and went out of the front gate toward the town. The poor soul, he will meet his death, Mrs. Kohler wailed. She ran back to her feather bed and hid her face in the pillow. Fritz kept watch at the window. No, no, Paulina, he called presently. I see lanterns coming. Johnny must have gone for somebody. Yes, four lanterns coming along the gulch. They stop. They must have seen him already. Now they are under the hill, and I cannot see them. But I think they have him. They will bring him back. I must dress and go down. He caught his trousers and began pulling them on by the window. Yes, here they come, half a dozen men. And they have tied him with a rope, Paulina. Ah, the poor man, to be led like a cow, groaned Mrs. Kohler. Oh, it is good that he has no wife. She was reproaching herself for nagging Fritz when he drank himself into foolish pleasantry or mild sulks and felt that she had never before appreciated her blessings. Wunsch was in bed for ten days, during which time he was gossiped about and even preached about in Moonstone. The Baptist preacher took a shot at the fallen man from his pulpit. Mrs. Livery Johnson nodding approvingly from her pew. The mothers of Wunsch's pupils sent him notes informing him that their daughters would discontinue their music lessons. The old maid who had rented him her piano sent the town dray for her contaminated instrument, and ever afterward declared that Wunsch had ruined its tone and scarred its glossy finish. The Kohlers were unremitting in their kindness to their friend. Mrs. Kohler made him soups and broths without stint, and Fritz repaired the dove house and mounted it on a new post, lest it might be a sad reminder. As soon as Wunsch was strong enough to sit about in his slippers and wadded jacket, he told Fritz to bring him some stout thread from the shop. When Fritz asked what he was going to sew, he produced the tattered score of Orpheus and said he would like to fix it up for a little present. Fritz carried it over to the shop and stitched it into pasteboards, covered with dark suiting cloth. Over the stitches he glued a strip of thin red leather which he got from his friend the harness maker. After Paulina had cleaned the pages with fresh bread, Wunsch was amazed to see what a fine book he had. It opened stiffly, but that was no matter. Sitting in the arbor one morning under the ripe grapes and the brown curling leaves, with a pen and ink on the bench beside him, and the gluck score on his knee, Wunsch pondered for a long while. Several times he dipped the pen in the ink, and then put it back again in the cigar box, in which Mrs. Kohler kept her writing utensils. His thoughts wandered over a wide territory, over many countries and many years. There was no order or logical sequence in his ideas. Pictures came and went without reason. 
faces mountains rivers autumn days in other vineyards far away he thought of a fuzzricey that he had made through the hearts mountains in his student days of the innkeeper's pretty daughter who had lighted his pipe for him in the garden one summer evening of the woods above wiesbaden haymakers on an island in the river the roundhouse whistle woke him from his revelries ah yes he was in moonstone colorado he frowned for a moment and looked at the book on his knee he had thought of a great many appropriate things to write in it but suddenly he rejected all of them opened the book and at the top of the much engraved title page he wrote rapidly in purple ink einst o wunder a wunsch moonstone Colorado. September 30, 18. Nobody in Moonstone ever found what Wunsch's first name was. That A may have stood for Adam, or August, or even Amadeus. He got very angry if anyone asked him. He remained A. Wunsch to the end of this chapter there. When he presented this score to Thea, he told her that in ten years she would either know what the inscription meant or she would not have the least idea, in which case it would not matter. When Wunsch began to pack his trunk, both the Kohlers were very unhappy. He said he was coming back some day, but that for the present, since he had lost all his pupils, it would be better for him to try some new town. Mrs. Kohler darned and mended all his clothes and gave him two new shirts she had made for Fritz. Fritz made him a new pair of trousers and would have made him an overcoat, but for the fact that overcoats were so easy to pawn. Wunsch would not go across the ravine to the town until he went to take the morning train for Denver. He said that after he got to Denver he would look around. He left Moonstone one bright October morning without telling anyone goodbye. He bought his ticket and went directly into the smoking car. When the train was beginning to pull out, he heard his name called frantically, and looking out of the window, he saw Theo Kronborg standing on the siding, bareheaded and panting. Some boys had brought word to school that they saw Wunsch's trunk going over to the station and Thea had run away from school. She was at the end of the station platform, her hair in two braids, her blue gingham dress wet to the knees because she had run across lots through the weeds. It had rained during the night, and the tall sunflowers behind her were fresh and shining. Goodbye, Herr Winch, goodbye, she called, waving to him. He thrust his head out at the car window and called back, Lieben Sie wohl, lieben Sie wohl, mein Kind. He watched her until the train swept around the curve beyond the roundhouse and then sank back into his seat muttering. She had been running. Ah, she will run a long way. They cannot stop her. What was it about the child that one believed in? Was it her dogged industry? so unusual in this free and easy country? Was it her imagination? 
More likely it was because she had both imagination and a stubborn will, curiously balancing and interpenetrating each other. There was something unconscious and unwakened about her that tempted curiosity. She had a kind of seriousness that he had not met with in a pupil before. She hated difficult things, and yet she could never pass one by. They seemed to challenge her. She had no peace until she mastered them. She had the power to make a great effort to lift a weight heavier than herself. Wunscht hoped he would always remember her as she stood by the track, looking up at him, her broad, eager face so fair in color with its high cheekbones, yellow eyebrows, and greenish hazel eyes. It was a face full of light and energy, of the unquestioning hopefulness of first youth. Yes, she was like a flower full of sun, but not the soft German flowers of his childhood. He had it now, the comparison he absently reached for before. She was like the yellow prickly pear blossoms that opened there in the desert, thornier and sturdier than the maiden flowers he remembered. Not so sweet, but wonderful. That night, Mrs. Kohler brushed away many a tear as she got supper and set the table for two. When they sat down, Fritz was more silent than usual. People who have lived long together need a third at table. They know each other's thoughts so well that they have nothing left to say. Mrs. Kohler stirred and stirred her coffee and clattered the spoon, but she had no heart for her supper. She felt, for the first time in years, that she was tired of her own cooking. She looked across the glass lamp at her husband and asked him if the butcher liked his new overcoat and whether he had got the shoulders right in a ready-made suit he was patching over for Ray Kennedy. After supper, Fritz offered to wipe the dishes for her, but she told him to go about his business and not to act as if she were sick or getting helpless. When her work in the kitchen was all done, she went out to cover the oleanders against frost and to take a last look at her chickens. As she came back from the hen house, she stopped by one of the linden trees and stood resting her hand on the trunk. He would never come back. The poor man, she knew that. He would drift on from new town to new town, from catastrophe to catastrophe. He would hardly find a good home for himself again. He would die at last in some rough place and be buried in the desert or on the wild prairie, far enough from any linden tree. Fritz, smoking his pipe on the kitchen doorstep, watched his Paulina and guessed her thoughts. He, too, was sorry to lose his friend. But Fritz was getting old. He had lived a long while and had learned to lose without struggle. End of 13 14. Mother, 
said Peter Kronborg to his wife one morning about two weeks after Wunsch's departure. How would you like to drive out to Copper Hole with me today? Mrs. Kronborg said she thought she would enjoy the drive. She put on her gray cashmere dress and gold watch and chain as befitted a minister's wife, and while her husband was dressing, she packed a black oilcloth satchel with such clothing as she and Thor would need overnight. Copper Hole was a settlement fifteen miles northwest of Moonstone, where Mr. Kronborg preached every Friday evening. There was a big spring there, and a creek, and a few irrigating ditches. It was a community of discouraged agriculturists who had disastrously experimented with dry farming. Mr. Kronborg always drove out one day and back the next, spending the night with one of his parishioners. Often, when the weather was fine, his wife accompanied him. Today they set out from home after the midday meal, leaving Tilly in charge of the house. Mrs. Kronborg's maternal feeling was always garnered up in the baby, whoever the baby happened to be. If she had the baby with her, the others could look out for themselves. Thor, of course, was not, accurately speaking, a baby any longer. In the matter of nourishment, he was quite independent of his mother, though this independence had not been won without a struggle. Thor was conservative in all things, and the whole family had anguished with him while he was being weaned. Being the youngest, he was still the baby, for Mrs. Cranborg, though he was nearly four years old, and sat up boldly on her lap this afternoon, holding on to the ends of the lines and shouting, Mup, mup, horsey! His father watched him affectionately and hummed hymn tunes in the jovial way that was sometimes such a trial to Thea. Mrs. Kronborg was enjoying the sunshine and the brilliant sky and all the faintly marked features of the dazzling, monotonous landscape. She had a rather unusual capacity for getting the flavor of places and of people. Although she was so enmeshed in family cares most of the time, she could emerge serene when she was away from them. For a mother of seven, she had a singularly unprejudiced she had a singularly unprejudiced point of view. She was, moreover, a fatalist, and as she did not attempt to direct things beyond her control, she found a good deal of time to enjoy the ways of man and nature. When they were well upon their road, out where the first lean pasture lands began, and the sand grass made a faint showing between the sage brushes, Mr. Kronborg dropped his tune and turned to his wife. Mother, I've been thinking about something. I guessed you had. What is it? She shifted Thor to her left knee, where he would be more out of the way. Well, it's about Thea. Mr. Follensby came to my study at the church the other day and said they would like to have their two girls take lessons of Thea. Then I sounded Miss Myers. Miss Myers was the organist in Mr. Kronborg's church. And she said there was a good deal of talk about whether Thea wouldn't take over Wunsch's pupils. She said if Thea stopped school, 
she wouldn't wonder if she could get pretty much all Wunsch's class. People think Thea knows about all Wunsch could teach. Mrs. Cranborg looked thoughtful. Do you think we ought to take her out of school so young? She is young, but next year would be her last year anyway. She's far along for her age, and she can't learn much under the principal we've got now, can she? No, I'm afraid she can't, his wife admitted. She frets a good deal, and says that man always has to look in the back of the book for the answers. She hates all that diagramming they have to do, and I think myself it's a waste of time. Mr. Cronborg settled himself back into the seat and slowed the mare to a walk. You see, it occurs to me that we might raise Thea's prices, so it would be worth her while. Seventy-five cents for hour lessons, fifty cents for half-hour lessons. If she got, say, two-thirds of Wunsch's class, that would bring her in upwards of ten dollars a week. Better pay than teaching a country school, and there would be more work in vacation than in winter. Steady work twelve months in the year. That's an advantage. And she'd be living at home, with no expenses. There'd be talk if you raised her prices, said Mrs. Cronborg dubiously. At first there would. But Thea is so much the best musician in town that they'd all come into line after a while. A good many people in Moonstone have been making money lately and have bought new pianos. There were ten new pianos shipped in here from Denver in the last year. People ain't going to let them stand idle. Too much money invested. I believe Thea can have as many scholars as she can handle, if we set her up a little. How set her up? Do you mean? Mrs. Cronborg felt a certain reluctance about accepting this plan, though she had not yet had time to think out her reasons. Well, I've been thinking for some time we could make good use of another room. We couldn't give up the parlor to her all the time. If we build another room on the L and put the piano in there, she could give lessons all day long, and it wouldn't bother us. We could build a clothes press in it, and put in a bed lounge and a dresser, and let Anna have it for her sleeping room. She needs a place of her own, now that she's beginning to be dressy. Seems like Thea ought to have the choice of the room herself, said Mrs. Cronborg. But, my dear, she don't want it. Won't have it. I sounded her coming home from church on Sunday. Asked her if she would like to sleep in a new room if we built on. She fired up like a little wildcat and said she'd made her own room all herself, and she didn't think anybody ought to take it away from her. She don't mean to be impertinent, father. She's made decided that way like my father, Mrs. Cronborg spoke warmly. I never have any trouble with the child. I remember my father's ways and go at her carefully. Thea's all right. Mr. Cronborg laughed indulgently and pinched Thor's full cheek. Oh, I didn't mean anything against your girl, mother. She's all right, but she's a little wildcat just the same. 
I think Ray Kennedy's planning to spoil a born old maid. Huh. She'll get something a good sight better than Ray Kennedy, you see. Thea's an awful smart girl. I've seen a good many girls take music lessons in my time, but I ain't seen one that took to it so. Winch said so, too. She's got the making of something in her. I don't deny that, and the sooner she gets at it in a business-like way, the better. She's the kind that takes responsibility, and it'll be good for her. Mrs. Cronborg was thoughtful. In some ways it will, maybe, but there's a good deal of strain about teaching youngsters, and she's always worked so hard with the scholars she has. I've often listened to her pounding it into him. I don't want to work her too hard. She's so serious that she's never had what you might call any real childhood. Seems like she ought to have the next few years sort of free and easy. She'll be tied down with responsibilities soon enough. Mr. Kromborg patted his wife's arm. Don't you believe it, mother. Thea is not the marrying kind. I've watched him. Anna will marry before long and make a good wife, but I don't see Thea bringing up a family. She's got a good deal of her mother in her, but she hasn't got all. She's too peppery and too fond of having her own way. Then she's always got to be ahead in everything. That kind make good church workers and missionaries and school teachers, but they don't make good wives. They fret all their energy away, like coals, and get cut on the wire. Mrs. Kronborg laughed. Give me the graham crackers I put in your pocket for Thor. He's hungry. You're a funny man, Peter. A body wouldn't think to hear you. You was talking about your own daughters. I guess you see through him. Still, even if Thea ain't apt to have children of her own, I don't know as that's a good reason why she should wear herself out on other people's. That's just the point, mother. A girl with all that energy has got to do something, same as a boy, to keep her out of mischief. If you don't want her to marry Ray, let her do something to make herself independent. Well, I'm not against it. It might be the best thing for her. I wish I felt sure she wouldn't worry. She takes things hard. She nearly cried herself sick about Winch's going away. She's the smartest child of them all, Peter, by a long ways. Peter Kromborg smiled. There you go, Anna. That's you all over again. Now, I have no favorites. They all have their good points. But you, with a twinkle, always did go in for brains. Mrs. Kronborg chuckled as she wiped the cracker crumbs from Thor's chin and fists. Well, you're mighty conceited, Peter, but I don't know as I ever regretted it. I prefer having a family of my own to fussing with other folks' children. That's the truth. Before the Kronborgs reached Copper Hole, Thea's destiny was pretty well mapped out for her. Mr. Kronborg was always delighted to have an excuse for enlarging the house. Mrs. Kronborg was quite right in her conjecture that there would be unfriendly comment in Moonstone when Thea raised her prices for music lessons. People said she was getting too conceited for anything, 
Mrs. Livery Johnson put on a new bonnet and paid up all her back calls to have the pleasure of announcing in each parlor she entered that her daughters, at least, would never pay professional prices to Thea Kronborg. Thea raised no objection to quitting school. She was now in the high room, as it was called, in the next to the highest class, and was studying geometry and beginning Caesar. She no longer recited her lessons to the teacher she liked, but to the principal, a man who belonged, like Mrs. Livery Johnson, to the camp of Thea's natural enemies. He taught school because he was too lazy to work among the grown-up people, and he made an easy job of it. He got out of real work by inventing useless activities for his pupils, such as the tree diagramming system. Thea had spent hours making trees out of Thanatopsis, Hamlet's soliloquy, Cato on immortality. She agonized under this waste of time and was only too glad to accept her father's offer of liberty. So Thea left school the 1st of November. By the 1st of January, she had eight one-hour pupils and ten half-hour pupils, and there would be more in the summer. She spent her earnings generously. She bought a new Brussels carpet for the parlor and a rifle for Gunner and Axel, and an imitation tiger-skin coat and cap for Thor. She enjoyed being able to add to the family possessions, and thought Thor looked quite as handsome in his spots as the rich children she had seen in Denver. Thor was most complacent in his conspicuous apparel. He could walk anywhere by this time, though he always preferred to sit or to be pulled in his cart. He was a blissfully lazy child and had a number of long, dull plays, such as making nests for his china duck and waiting for her to lay him an egg. Thea thought him very intelligent, and she was proud that he was so big and burly. She found him restful, loved to hear him call her sitter, and really liked his companionship, especially when she was tired. On Saturday, for instance, when she taught from nine in the morning until five in the afternoon, she liked to get off in a corner with Thor after supper, away from all the bathing and dressing and joking and talking that went on in the house, and ask him about his duck, or hear him tell one of his rambling stories. End of Part 14 Recording by Mary